The omnibus appropriations bill enacted last year contains something called the Anti-Money Laundering Whistleblower Improvement Act. My next guest calls it the most important transnational anti-corruption whistleblower law since the Dodd-Frank law in 2010. In fact, he helped get it passed. Stephen Cohn is a partner at the law firm Cohn, Cohn and Calapinto, and he joins me now. Steve, good to have you back. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And this whistleblower issue has been kind of your abiding life story, you might say. Tell us about the Anti-Money Laundering Whistleblower Improvement Act that was uh, just enacted. Sure. So the right of people outside the United States to blow the whistle, be anonymous and confidential, and qualify for an award has been growing since Dodd-Frank, because Dodd-Frank covered the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And it's really been a sea change for fighting international corruption. So we saw this. We then saw very large money laundering cases. And in fact, I represented uh, the whistleblower in what they believed to be the largest money laundering case ever, which was $240 billion laundered from Russia and former Soviet republics into Western banks over a 10 or 15 year period. And it's just a disgraceful situation. So we push and we advocated for a whistleblower law to cover money laundering. Well, you would need anonymity and confidentiality, which the law has, but the key was monetary rewards. Because if you're in Russia or you're in Denmark or you're in France, our retaliation laws don't apply. If you're in a country without a good rule of law, like Russia or many countries around the world, you know, you could be shot for being a whistleblower, especially for money laundering. So we pushed this really hard. We fought for two years. They put it was so significant at the end because we were able to point out that money laundering is how the Russians move their dirty cash by the billion. Sure. We're also able to show that's how you can find out where the oligarchs money is. So at the very end of the entire legislative process, they put this bill onto the federal budget and they decided not only to cover money laundering but to cover sanctions, sanctions busting as well, all to help fight those trying to police Russian dirty money. And in many ways, then, you expect this to aid federal law enforcement. Well, that's the key. So what this law does is it permits people with inside information, even if they reside outside the United States, to give that information to either the Department of Justice or the Department of Treasury, all designed to really incentivize the highest quality information from insiders to the law enforcement officials that have the ability to prosecute. And these people then would blow the whistle not to the company management, say, that's doing the money laundering that they might, say, begin with in the United States – based case, but to U.S. officials? Correct. So money laundering is really the heart of the worst forms of corruption. If you're going to pay a bribe, you don't put the bribe money in your own account under your name. Drugs, they don't put it under their name. They create phony accounts, phony identities, 
That's money laundering, hiding beneficial ownership. So money laundering gets terrorist financing, drugs, tax evasion, bribery. So you're really looking at some really dirty activities. But when it comes to Russia specifically, what we know from this very large money laundering case that came out of Donsky Bank is that the Russians wanted to move their money outside of Russia. In the Donsky case, it was proven that the Russian secret police, the FSB, was laundering money and Putin's family. So they wanted to move the money out. Now, once they, the money left Russia, it went through New York banks, but then it could go back into France, Italy, it could go anywhere. It's just laundered money where the true owners aren't known. So this is really strikes at the heart of corruption, and that's why permitting people who are non-U.S. citizens to use this law and obtain rewards, it was really the heart of the reform that we obtained in December 2022. All right. We're speaking with attorney Stephen Cohn. He's a partner at Cohn, Cohn, Colapinto. And at the same time, you're reporting that the Justice Department is kind of dropping the ball in the headline words here for fraud cases. And it seems like under False Claims Act that whistleblowers of any sort, whether it's false claims or international money laundering, need to know that the case will actually get taken up. Exactly. So the problem with all whistleblower laws is sometimes the institutional resistance of bureaucracies. So the U.S. Department of Justice, in my view, is schizophrenic. We deal with DOJ prosecutors and, and investigators who are fantastic. They honor confidentiality. They're dedicated. They do a brilliant job. Well, there are others in the department that are clearly hostile to whistleblowers. And really, I mean, they're just, it's just bad news. We'll put it that way. The good part about this money laundering bill, and I hope it's a game changer. I hope it is implemented properly because although the Dodd-Frank Act permits anonymous and confidential whistleblowing to the SEC and, and, and to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, up until the AML law, the Justice Department was not required to accept confidential and anonymous whistleblowing information in any of the reward laws, including false claims, that they administer. Because they weren't required to have a whistleblower office, to ha accept anonymous complaints, there was no real coherency within the Justice Department how they dealt with whistleblowers. This law requires justice to accept anonymous complaints. Therefore, justice must implement rules to accept anonymous complaints, which means training of the officials of the Justice Department who will be interacting with these anonymous and confidential whistleblowers. Within the SEC, we saw that this level of legal requirement had a fantastic positive impact. It really forced that agency to have an effective whistleblower program. Sure. And just the a same quick, needs to happen with the Justice Department. And just a quick detail clarification, someone who's confidential and, analysis and, and, and anonymous 
is also is known to the Justice Department. They're just not known to the party against no, which they're blowing the whistle. No. Oh. No. This is what's brilliant about the law. The government doesn't know who the whistleblower is. They have to work with an intermediary, which is a U.S. licensed attorney. So it's up to the government to develop the trust of the whistleblower. So they will voluntarily reveal their identity and become an effective cooperating witness. But the power has shifted where where a whistleblower could walk into justice and they could really treat them as they say how they wanted to treat them. There was no coherent program. Some were fantastic, some were not. Now, if they come in under the AML program, the government doesn't know who their most important sources of information. Well, they don't know who these people are. So the government has to change its philosophy and its culture toward the whistleblower so they develop trust and they all work together. Every large case I have done, and we've had cases that have brought in millions and even billions in sanctions, at some point the government always knows who the whistleblower is. They have to. But that is built by trust and professionalism. And that is what we hope will drive this new law into making it super effective. And just a quick devil's advocate question before we close. I mean, the government needs to know that someone who is, say, a lawyer comes in representing an unknown whistleblower. I mean, there are going to be people that just try to game the system. And, you know, not every lawyer is maybe as scrupulous as you are. So how does the government know this is not just a couple of people in collusion to stick it to some company they're mad at for reasons that have nothing to do with illegality? Sure. So that is the beauty of requiring the licensed attorney, because the licensed attorney has skin in the game. First, it's their reputation, potential bar charges. If some fraud or manipulation is going on, the government may not know who the whistleblower is, but they can hold the lawyer accountable. So it's to the, the lawyer is really required to do due diligence and present evidence that's honest. I mean, if there's any fraud done, you automatically lose any right to an award. If you lie, you lose your right to an award. If you try to get around certain rules, you lose your rights. So there's any lawyer who enters these programs as a representative is under tremendous pressure and legal obligation to be very honest. And that's what we see in the SEC program. There's almost, I don't know of any cases right now where a lawyer has been sanctioned for manipulation of the system, and they've had 65,000 whistleblowers have entered the SEC program. And there's not one public case of a lawyer having a bar charge or any form of sanction. And you've got a new book about rules for whistleblowers coming out soon, by the way. That's correct. So Rules for Whistleblowers, which goes over everything a whistleblower needs to know from confidentiality. I have a whole section on the AML law. In fact, all of the whistleblower laws are discussed. It's coming out in June. And I really, you know, I think if you're going to blow the whistle, you really need to know how to do it right and what your rights are. Attorney Stephen Cohn is a partner at Cohn Cohn Colapinto. Thanks so much for that update. Thank you so much. 
And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw 
it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, 
there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.